0: said this last hour, sort of, I didn't know there was this many people in Fayetteville that weren't on a mission trip, skiing, or at the beach this week. We're part of the remnant, glad you're here. Before we dive into this week's lesson on the spiritual discipline of fasting, which is my assignment this morning, I want to share with you an email testimony. We've been doing this every week. that I received from someone about the impact that last week's teaching by Lee on Sabbath rest had on their life. This is from Charity Stillings, who is the co-directional leader along with Brad Ringler of New Heights Children's Ministry. And this is Charity. My time on staff has been so refreshing in a lot of ways, she says. I believe it's been the rest that God promised me during the hardest times in the prior two years. Charity had been the former COO of Seven Hills. uh, And she had, that was hard work there. It's hard work here. But she considers this a season of rest. She said, I was sure he'd promised me green pastures still waters and then he delivered but it feels funny sharing that and celebrating God's faithfulness she was reluctant to because she said she thought it was signed to others like I wasn't giving it all this season if you know charity she always gives it all that being said Sunday when Lee read the list of things that happen when we don't rest I felt like he was reading my mail though my soul is stronger than ever I'd lost touch with my body mind and relationships to some degree On my rainy drive to work this morning, she says, Lily, my daughter, was in the back seat, and I was feeling the pressure to use that 10 minutes to have meaningful conversation. But all I really wanted to do was turn on lean back and do just that. I wanted to lean back into the loving arms of a beautiful father to breathe deep and know that he's good. So I let go of that nagging desire to perform, and I just worshiped. As Lily got out of the car, I felt the Holy Spirit bring it all around for me. He reminded me that it's easy for me to get stuck on doing or on task. To design a new plan, to work harder and longer, to do more research, to dig up evidence-based best practice, to think strategic, some of us can relate to this stuff, to be more intentional, to power through, to populate another calendar with milestones, reminders, and dates, then only to arrive exhausted, desperate for rest, out of touch with relationships that I was trying to hard to preserve in the first place. But when I'm yielding the Holy Spirit, inviting him to go before me to carry the weight of my marriage, my parenting, my friendships, my work, and my ministry, he does a supernatural work that is greater than all my efforts. When I invite him, he falls on me like gentle rain, and I go about all of these things, these tasks, dripping small puddles, leaving a little bit of him everywhere I go. Rather than grinding it out under the crushing weight of my own expectations and the impression that I could always be doing better. That's called drivenness. I'm walking in a peace now that surpasses all understanding. I find myself praying continually, not for my own effort, but it's because the Holy Spirit is present in me. And now I'm experiencing joy despite my circumstances, whatever they may be, and rest in my spirit while my body's at work. But that's today. I pray he reminds me of what he said when I wake up planning tomorrow morning. I'm sharing for my own accountability to celebrate what the Lord is doing and for anyone else who needs this encouragement. Those are good words for all the type A driven overachievers in the room today from charity. Now we turn our attention to the spiritual discipline of fasting. The term fasting is used in the Bible. It's kind of a duh. We know what it means. It means to abstain from some or all food or drink for a period of time. And that's generally the way I'm going to use the term this morning, but there's an expanded definition. It can mean a discipline of abstaining from other things, not just food as well. And I'm going to touch on a few of those as I go throughout the talk. Fasting, though, is definitely a spiritual discipline of abstinence. It's a tangible way to practice self-denial and open space in our body and soul to engage more deeply with God. And I'm going to be going back and forth between Old and New Testament. Let me note a rather strange practice from the Old Testament first and talk about it. There was an extreme form of fasting that I want to at least mention. Only a few women and men practiced it. By the way, I was surprised when I got to number 6, 1 through 21, which is the part of Scripture I'm talking about right now. It's a Nazarite vow, if you've never heard of it. It mentions women as well as men that could practice this vow. We're only given, I think, examples of men doing it in the Old Testament, at least doing it for extended periods of time. And and before I tell you what it was, I'll give you a little test. Last hour they got Can you name somebody from the Old Testament that took a lifelong Nazarite vow? Samson. Okay, you got that one. There's two more. One of them's kind of, who's a priest that did it? Samuel. And then there's that character that, that kind of bridges the Old and New Testament who also took a Nazarite vow, the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist. Those all took Nazarite vows, lifelong apparently Nazarite vows. What was a Nazarite vow? It was a fast from alcohol in any form, even grapes and grape juice and grape seeds, strangely enough. It also involved probably fasting for, from certain foods, or those, those aren't spelled out in number six. It involved other disciplines as well. Certainly, this only applied to males, not shaving and not cutting your hair. I assume that went both ways gender-wise. Centuries later, Jesus recorded these words. Matthew and Luke tell us that he told us that part of being a disciple of his was learning to deny ourselves. Luke records it in Luke 9:23. And Jesus saying that self-denial, he called it taking up our cross daily and dying to ourselves, will be a daily struggle or a daily discipline. Now, he's not telling us to take a Nazarite vow. He certainly did not. He didn't model that. And that's mentioned nowhere in the New Testament. But some of us may need to consider giving up some things that may be okay for others to do. Let me tell you what that looks like. I'm going to be telling you stories throughout my talk this morning, and this is the first one. About 25 years ago, I had a friend named Bob, and I was on staff at a church to the north of us, a little church called Fellowship Bible Church, and and I was a community pastor, and I had a regular, ordinary, small group, a community group that met in, uh, in my home and other homes in the group. And that particular semester, I decided to do something a little different. We had a way of kind of passing out members each year when we did our restart in August of our groups. And I elected not to take anybody from so-called draft of members of the church. And I just asked people in my neighborhood and some relationships I had to form a true community group. And there was about, it was a small group that year, probably about 12 of us in the group and different types of people in the group. is was a very ordinary cross-section of humanity. And Bob was in the group. Bob was about eight or 10 years older than I. Um, Bob, had, he'd been married a couple of times. He and his wife were members of fellowship. Some of the members of the group did not go to fellowship Bible church. And uh, one night we were in another friend's home, a friend by the name of David, who was in the group. He was my fishing buddy. Bob now lives in Little Rock. David now lives in Tulsa. And, and we were in David's home. And we were doing the ordinary prayer requests like all of you have done in group. And we were doing the thing where someone would share a prayer request and we'd pray for that prayer request right then. And we got to Bob. And it had been pretty uneventful that evening. And Bob, and he was kind of a kidder. And I didn't know if he was messing with us at first. and realized he was serious. He says, I'm an alcoholic. Well, none of us had any reason to suspect that. And he told us what his drinking habits were. He told us that every day after work, when he got off work, he would go for about an hour to two hours to a certain bar and drink there. He did that five days a week. He didn't have alcohol at home. He didn't drink any other time. But by the time he got home, he was pretty sloshed. And not only that, the neighbors across the street, who were a much younger couple and had younger children, he loved those children. He was their godfather. And they had announced the week before that they weren't going to let him see the kids anymore until he quit drinking. And it got Bob's attention. So Bob was here to announce that to our group. And I didn't have all the tools in my toolbox as a minister that I've got now. I didn't have the Joshua Center, that didn't exist. I didn't have Celebrate Recovery, that didn't exist. You know, there was AA and there was rehab and there were different things and I'm thinking in my brain, I'm doing the professional thing, I'm thinking, what do I need to get Bob to to get him some help? And I'm planning all that scheming. And God works through all those different organizations in wonderful ways. But that wasn't the way he chose to work this time. He chose to work in a very ordinary way. This is more than a story about fasting. This is a story about the power of community. And my friend, I all very ordinary. He was my next door neighbor uh, who had been a former Methodist lay minister. And he he says, do y'all believe in laying on of hands? I said, sure, right now we do. And uh, so we all laid our hands on Bob. And we all started kind of praying and kind of prophesying and kind of giving advice and kind of talking while you're praying. Some of you have done that. I love it. And, and everybody's engaged. And we're all kind of just kind of collectively brainstorming in the power of the Holy Spirit how to help Bob. And Bob's laying there. And we're all praying. And this goes on for quite a while. My friend David had, had a drinking problem earlier in life. And he concocts this scheme while we're praying that they're going to break the cycle of sin, this bad habit in Bob's life, by bringing him to Jerry's house, my next door neighbor, every day during this time. And they're going to pray and they end up playing video games a lot. And, and it just, you know, break the pattern. And I thought, this, I'm thinking to myself, this is never gonna work. I mean, I understand a little bit about addiction, you know, and, and now I know more that neural pathways have been burned in your brain. Your body is addicted to the alcohol. It needs it. This is more than just, you know, stopping cussing or something like that. This is a serious addiction, guys. That's what I'm thinking, but I don't say it because I don't want to burst their bubble. I thought I oh, would well, let them try it. Well, it worked. It worked really, really well. My only contribution was to tell him that Luke 9, 23, from the children's NIV this time. That wasn't on the screen. I said, when you have that urge to go to the bar every day after work rather than go to Jerry's house, just yell out no to the devil, to your flesh and your sin nature, and yes to the things God does. Well, it's been about 25 years. I saw Bob the last time a couple of years ago. He hadn't drank since that day. Praise God. Why am I telling you that story back in the Nazarite vow? Sometimes there's things we need to abstain from or to fast from and we need to take extreme measures in our life. Now, that's not the ordinary idea of fasting, not what I'm going to talk about the rest of the time, but I felt compelled to throw that out there. Centuries later, again, Jesus on fasting, at least on self-denial that it will be a daily struggle. Fasting is a way to literally embrace the spiritual truth that Moses told the Israelites and Jesus told, remember who Jesus was talking to when he said this, man does not live by bread alone. Who was Jesus talking to? The devil. Moses was talking to the Israelites. He goes on to say, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus' words are recorded in Luke 4.4. Another definition of fasting A purposeful emptying for a purposeful filling. Fasting is also an active engagement in a war that some of you still struggle to believe is going on. But it is going on. The Bible's clear about it. There are spiritual forces interacting with you on a daily basis, I believe. I believe the Bible teaches that. Ephesians 6. And that war goes on constantly, not just between those spiritual forces, but something else we're gonna see here in a minute when we get to another passage of scripture called our sin nature, our flesh. All of us have it. We were born with it. C.S. Lewis calls it a bent towards sin. And so this war that goes on between our flesh or our sin nature and these spiritual forces and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, fasting is an active engagement in that battle. That battle is described by Paul in detail in his own personal life in Romans 7 and 8 if you want to check it out later. Let's go Old Testament just a minute. Again, even when I'm in the Old Testament, I'm going back and forth between old and new. Aside from those few strange individuals that took that Nazarite vow, fasting is primarily portrayed in the Old Testament as something that individuals or groups of people did during times of desperation in response to dangers, trials, or heartaches in order to demonstrate, I believe, three things. Humility, repentance, and dependence on God. Jesus validated these Old Testament reasons for fastings, I believe, when he told the Pharisees in one of his many arguments with him, this time it was about fasting, and they've come to him and they've noted, you and your disciples don't fast. You don't have a habit or a custom of fasting. They didn't. And he said, John's do, and we do, why don't you? That, that argument is recorded by three gospel historians, Matthew 9, 14, and 15, if you're taking notes, Mark 2, 18 through 20, and Luke 5, through 35. And he simply said that his disciples would fast later on when he wasn't around anymore. Now, before we get, though, to the New Testament, I want to give you a couple of Old Testament examples of crisis fasting. Old Testament type of fasting. The first one's a really feel good. I love the story. You love the story. The second one, it doesn't feel real good. It has a different kind of ending. Let's go happy first. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. i tell this story three or four times a year. I love the guy's name. The king of Judah's name is Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is doing his kingly thing one day, and he gets word from some men, verse 2, They tell him this, a vast army is coming against you, an army of several nations in fact, from Edom from the other side of the sea. It's already in this place called Hazan Tamar which is basically the En Desert and Jehoshaphat is extremely alarmed. That's not a good day at work if you're a king. He's very scared. You would be too. So he resolved to do what? Muster an army? No, he inquired of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah, a corporate nationwide fast. He asked the people to fast and they came together, the nation did, at Jerusalem to seek help from the Lord. They came from every town in Judah to seek him, it says. And you know the rest of the story. Most of you do. I'll remind you of it. They fasted and they prayed and then someone prophesied. They prophesied that the action they should take is to send out a choir in front of the army singing worship and praise to God. And God evoked it evoked from God this fasting this worship and this prayer did a powerful response God moved this invading army to turn on itself and literally to wipe itself out because of racial differences between the three nations that were there and ethnic differences and the Israelites just went out there and picked up all the loot and it took days to haul it back then they threw a real big worship party singing, playing of instruments, shouting, dancing that went on for several days. So that's one really cool Old Testament story of Old Testament type of crisis fasting. Let me tell you another one. It's a crisis too. It was a crisis created by one man's sin, a guy by the name of David, another king of Israel. This time his sin was his, his famous sin. While the army was out fighting battle, he stayed back in town And he was hanging out on his rooftop, looking down on another rooftop, and there was a beautiful woman taking a bath. And basically, he said, I want her, and he sent someone to get her, and he was the king. He could do that. It happened to be one of his military leader's wives who was very beautiful, and he had sexual relations with her, and she got pregnant, and he tried to cover it up, and he couldn't do it successfully, so he had her husband killed. That's adultery and murder, fairly significant sins in Israel and today. And then he took her into his house as his wife, and she gave birth to their son, and he thought he'd got away with it. And a prophet by the name of Nathan shows up and confronts him through this little allegory about a sheep with his sin and convicts him. And he realizes the depth of what he's done, and he begins to repent, and then Nathan pronounces judgment on David from God. And he says, terrible things are going to happen in your family. And we know what happens after that. Terrible things do happen in your family. There's incest, there's rape, there's murder among his own children. His, one of his sons takes over the throne. It's just terrible things happen domestically for the rest of David's life. And he said, not only that, specifically the son that your wife just gave birth to, Bathsheba, is going to die. And David, well, let's pick up the story. Let me read it to you. It's for 2 Samuel 12, 13 through 23. He decides to fast. Nathan say, David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Yeah, more on that in a minute. The Lord has taken away your sin. In other words, you're not going to die. He's not going to kill you, but your son's going to die. The son born to you will die because you've made the Lord's name profane among his enemies you brought contempt on the name of the Lord you violated the ethos of heaven and there's going to be judgment for it and after Nathan had gone home the Lord struck the child just like he said he would have became ill David pleaded with God for the child he fasted and went into his house and spends a week lying on the ground in his room fasting the elders of his household go to him try to get him to eat he won't do it verse 18 on the seventh day the child dies David's servants were afraid to tell him the child was dead for they thought while the child was still living, we spoke to him and he wouldn't listen to us. How can he tell him now he's dead? He may do something really terrible. I assume hurt himself is what they're worried about. David notices the servants are talking to themselves. He said, is the child dead? They say, yeah, he's dead. Then David gets up off the ground, takes a bath, puts on fresh clothes and lotion, goes home, eats a big meal. and He worships God too in the meantime. His servants ask him, What on earth? That's a loose translation, okay? Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. Now he's dead and you get up and eat? What's going on? Verse 22 While the child was still alive, David said, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Then he makes an incredible faith statement. He says, I will someday go to him. He's saying, I'll see him again. He's expressing faith in eternal life. He says, but he can't return to me now. Well, is that the end of the story, Jim? And why did you tell it? No, it's not really. Something else came out of that fast, an incredible chapter of the Bible. It's Psalm 51. Let me read it to you because this is some of the deepest, richest theology on repentance. And remember I told you that fasting is often related to repentance, particularly in the Old Testament. These are the words of David. There's deep theology in here we don't get almost anywhere else. Hear the words of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. He's not making excuses, he's not saying, I'm doing it because of the way I was raised. He's not whining and saying, I did it because so-and-so made me. I know I'm, you know, I'm just human. He's owning his sin. Against you and you only have I sinned. What he's recognizing is a great truth and we need to remember it. When we decide to violate the ethos of heaven, it can have terrible horizontal consequences. Uriah's dead. (laughs) If I'm Uriah, I'm saying, felt like it was against me. His child is dead. There's terrible consequences. There's all kinds of things going to follow as a ramification of David's sin. But he recognizes something that we need to recognize. That when we choose to knowingly and willingly violate the ethos of God, we're joining in a rebellion that started back there with an angel by the name of Lucifer. And it's directed straight at God. That's what God says and that's what David says. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely, and now he's gonna note something that's theologically correct. We inherited, you and I did, and our kids will and our grandkids will, a predisposition or a bent towards sin, as C.S. Lewis tells us. It's called original sin. When Adam and Eve made those, quote, poor choices back there in the garden all their unborn children would inherit a bent towards sin David says this way I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me skip down to verse 10 now he's begging God to put back in him a clean heart Creating me a pure heart, O oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse eleven. Don't cast me from Your presence, and don't take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit, an obedient spirit. What He's asking for. So sustain me. Let's skip down to verse sixteen and seventeen. Last verses I'll read, and then we'll move on. You don't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are, number one, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Fasting in the New Testament. The subject of fasting, admittedly, was not a central issue in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus only gave one instruction about fasting. He never commanded fasting. He never propounded any detailed regulations about it. He did, however, radically change the way fasting was to be done. When he dealt with the subject, it was usually in response to some observation he was making about first century Jewish religious leaders. His instructions are given in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. I'm going to read them in just a minute. Before I do, just a reminder of the context of the verses. Jesus is addressing in those 18 verses of chapter six, the first 18 verses, what are called the three pillars of first century Jewish morality or piety. In other words, if you were going to be considered, and I'm not just talking about doing this for show, a a very serious Jew, a good Jew, man or woman, you did three things well. Number one was almsgiving. These are in no particular order. The order I'm picking is the one from the Sermon on the Mount. Giving to the poor. You gave to the poor faithfully and regularly and sacrificially. You prayed and you fasted. Fasting was thrown in there. They may not be all equal. He said more about prayer than he did about fasting, certainly. But I want to read to you before I read 16 and 18 just to prove the point that he was talking about these three things and not just about fasting alone. Verse 2, chapter 6. So when you give to the needy, here's how you do it. He said, don't be showy with it, basically. Don't be pretentious about it. When you pray, verse five, don't be showy. Don't be pretentious about it. Then he gives them a model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And then, verses 16 through 18, when you fast, here's how you fast, don't be showy about it. Don't look somber as the hypocrites do. By the way, the bulletin has parts of this verse on it but I know that the it's not in Genesis. That was just a mistake. And so you don't have to tell me after the service. We know that uh, it was just left over from last week. Sorry about that. But this is the verse sixteen through eighteen. Jesus' instructions about fasting. It's the hypocrites. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. Will disfigure their faces to show men they're fasting. I tell you the truth. They receive their reward in full. What's the reward? Recognition by people. But when you fast, just look normal. Take a bath. Clean up. Don't tell everybody you're fasting. It will be obvious to men that you're fasting only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will then reward you or answer your prayers. That's Jesus' instructions on fasting. I think it's the only ones he really ever gave. Uh, Okay. By New Testament times, let me say this. And when you fast, is an assumption by Jesus I would argue that fasting would be part of the normal rhythm of spiritual life of the disciples at some point but it's got to be noted to be intellectually honest Jesus never commanded his disciples to fast he simply assumed they would do so later on after he was gone but by New Testament times by Jesus's day fasting had become institutionalized in Jewish culture Some Jewish leaders fasted two days a week throughout the entire year. Jesus notes this in Luke 18, 12, if you're taking notes. Those days were on Thursdays and Mondays. That's not in the text. We know that from outside sources. (coughs) Why? Because Moses ascended Mount Sinai on Thursday and descended on Monday. All right, I've already noted Jesus' confrontation with the Jews about why his disciples didn't fast. Again, though, Jesus indicated that we and they would fast after he was gone back to the Father. Now, let's take a New Testament example in point. Remember Anna? That was the older woman who prayed and prophesied over Jesus as a baby in the temple when he was brought there to be dedicated. It's mentioned in Luke 2.37 that she fasted and prayed day and night, that she had a habit or a discipline of fasting and praying contrast that to Matthew eleven eighteen 18 and 19 where Jesus is noting that John the Baptist came fasting a lot took a Nazarite vow remember and not drinking alcohol and he says that the Jewish religious leaders called him crazy basically that's a paraphrase but check it out Matthew chapter 11 and Jesus says I come not fasting and occasionally drinking wine, first miracle was to turn wine, water into wine at a wedding feast, and you accuse me of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. So from that, I've got to conclude that Jesus did not have a regular habit of fasting from food or wine. He practiced more of an Old Testament form of fasting. Jesus did fast, we know that. One of the times we know, of course, when he was facing intense spiritual need and temptation in the wilderness, 40 days. (laughs) That's recorded by three gospel historians, Matthew 4, 1-11, Mark 1, 12-13, and Luke 4, 1-4. It appears from the book of Acts, though, and I know I'm going all over the map with this thing, but the Bible does. It appears from the book of Acts that the early church embraced fasting at some level as part of their regular spiritual practices the first missionaries sent out by a church the church in Antioch were chosen while a group of church leaders were praying fasting and worshiping and it's noted like just an ordinary part of their Christian life that's Acts 13 1 through 3 the appointment and the commissioning of elders on at least one occasion was accompanied by fasting. That's Acts fourteen twenty-three. It's also highly likely that Paul fasted regularly based on verses like 1 Corinthians 9 27 from the ESV. It doesn't mention fasting, but here's Paul. I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So what on earth are we going to do with all that? Well, I've got some practical suggestions on fasting. They're just tips on fastings. Well, with all that background. Now, I'll throw them out to you, and you can do with them what you want. Number one, I would encourage you to pray and ask God how to incorporate fasting into your relationship with him, if he wants you to, what it looks like. I'm going to give you some modern-day examples of it in just a minute. And then I'm going to throw out a Disclaimer. If you have obsessive or perfectionistic or controlling tendencies, I know some of you do. If you have those tendencies, be very careful with the spiritual discipline. No spiritual discipline is a fast track to spiritual perfection or a substitute for embracing daily the grace of God. Fasting could easily become for you just another form of religious legalism. And the Bible's clear about that. It's a waste of time. You're just going hungry. I've seen it happen in people's lives. Number three, consider partial fasting. On occasions like, I know what Daniel fast is real popular. That's based on Daniel 10. Uh, examples of partial fasting. Fast from certain foods. Fast from sugar, fast from, God forbid for some of you, chocolate, fast from sweets, from sodas, or a common one, still, alcohol. And I would add some of you ought to consider a Nazarite vow like Bob did, lifelong fast from alcohol, but that's between you and God. I'm not anti-alcohol, I know what the Bible says, but I'm just noting as we keep sending people to rehab and other things, this is a problem with some of you caffeine. Now, I want to give you a tip on that one. Most Americans are addicted to caffeine. It's no big deal, but you better be careful if you're just going to drop caffeine for a day or two. You may become unbearable and not not more spiritual, okay? Number four, skipping even one meal that you regularly eat is a significant discipline. I believe it is if it's accompanied by prayer. Number five, fasting from Television, Netflix, social media, or technology for a season can be a significant habit to employ. It can really help some of your spiritual lives. Number six, fasting should almost always be accompanied by, if it's going to be spiritual discipline, by prayer and worship, meditation, solitude, and rest. Now, let me give you some examples of modern-day fasting. First of all, from my own life. First admission, I'm not a very good faster, okay? Uh, Today, I have a habit today of intentionally missing maybe one or two meals a week, usually on Monday, for spiritual reasons as a discipline of fasting. And I'm just going to say this, I have a high metabolism, I'm sorry, and uh, I also struggle a little bit when I don't eat with low blood sugar. I know I'm whining and starting to make excuses, But I consider even missing breakfast a significant spiritual sacrifice, okay? And uh, I don't profess to be some paradigm or icon of fasting from food. I have done a little bit of a crisis fasting. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. My wife is much better at this practice than I am, but neither of us do extensive fasting. Short one to two meal fasts for her several times a week, for me usually once a week, do allow us to focus our thoughts, though, on the reasons that we're skipping a meal in the first place usually it's for a specific prayer request or intercession for someone now i'll tell you about a crisis fast that i did an old testament type of fast Uh, i was involved in a restaurant on dixon street in 1980 and i was a struggling young lawyer with two children two young children and we were going to experience a business failure won't go into the details of all that and and uh and I was going to probably either have to file bankruptcy, I probably wouldn't have done that, I don't know, maybe I would have. Or I was going to have to pay it out for a decade, all the debt, because I was personally on almost all of it. And the other two guys that were with me as partners didn't have any money. And I was deeply depressed about that. That's not a good day at work either. And, and uh, we were about to close the restaurant, and I started fasting and praying. I did it for about four days intensely, begging God to deliver me. And he did deliver me, not completely. Tales took me a few years to pay off some of the debt that was left after this deliverance I'm going to tell you about in just a minute. And I had to sell a home we were in and move into a smaller home. But we got by, and, and, and it wasn't a huge, terrible crisis in my life. But at the point in time, I thought it would be. And at the end of that four-day fast, a strange thing happened. There was another restaurant across the parking lot, a pretty famous restaurant if you're a Fayettevillean. It was called Restaurant on the Corner. And my friend owned it and ran it. His name was TL. And, and TL came across the parking lot after four days. Unbeknownst to me, I had no idea I was even considering this. And he said, I feel impressed to buy you all out, to buy your restaurant. And I started laughing. I said, why would you want to buy our restaurant when you know we're going to be closed in about a week? He said, I've got to protect the parking lot. We both had the same landlord. He said, I need control of this space. So we went back over to his place, and we sat down, and on a napkin, we struck a deal and signed it. And I walked out rejoicing to God because he delivered me. Now, you can argue all you want. That's just a coincidence. Baloney. (laughs) The God of heaven responded to my fast and intense prayers and gave me deliverance. That's Christ's fasting example for my own life. But I've got a better illustration of how someone in our congregation has used the spiritual discipline of regularly fasting in her own life and what it meant to her. So, Madison, come on up here, and I want you to tell us about it. She's a little shy, but she did a great job last hour, and I want her to tell you about her habits. For let me introduce you to her. How long have you been following Jesus, Madison?
1: Um, so I kind of like grew up in and out of church and was like culturally Christian. I was baptized, called myself a Christian for like 10 years, and then came to college. Saw all these people really following Jesus and realized that I was not one of those people. Um, And that's when I fully surrendered um, my life to Jesus, and that was about four years ago.
0: All right. How long have you been attending New Heights?
1: Um, I've been at New Heights for about three and a half years.
0: Okay. And you went through, and I'm going to promote some of our programs here. This is New Heights Speak, these STS That's our summer training school for college interns. It's in the summer. You went through that first. That's in the summer of 2017. And then you did the nine-month school of ministry last year, also Mm -hmm. an internship program here. And you currently serve where in our church?
1: Uh, In early childhood, usually second service. Okay. She's off Here.
0: today, and uh, you're also a grad student in the counseling program at JBU, and I think you also work part-time, you told me, at the Willard Walker Center for Children in Springdale. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Tell us about your personal experience with fasting as a spiritual discipline or practice.
1: Yeah. So, I didn't get to share this last service, but a verse that came to my mind was Joel 2.12, and it says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Um, and so... Um, prior to last semester, my extent of fasting was fasting from social media, uh, which was really good for me, um, and I saw the benefits of that. Um, but as I walked deeper with the Lord and that, like, my relationship with Him just grew, um, that wasn't really enough. Um, and so, joining a community group this in the fall, they had this practice of fasting. And so, um, one Wednesday a month, they would fast for 24 hours and then get together and have a huge potluck. Um, to break the fast and so I joined in on that um, and we started fasting uh, one Wednesday a month Um, and as the semester was coming to a close um, I saw the end of that verse come to life of the weeping and mourning and just being in this dark place and um, felt the Lord telling me that what I needed was rest Um, and so then coming into 2019 um, he made it very clear to me that I needed to find a way um, to rest and to, um, just be with him. And so for me, that looked like, um, taking off from work every Wednesday. Um, I have the ability to do that. I know most people probably don't, um, but I took advantage of that and, um, just watched how the Lord moved through that. And so, um, on the Wednesday that I fast, um, that usually means going to the prayer room and um, setting aside all distractions, um, I don't look at my planner, which is really hard for me because I like to plan things and know what's coming next. But I don't look at what's coming next or um, really text or, like, talk to anybody. Um, I don't check emails, which is really hard for me also. I don't work on any schoolwork and just focus on um, my relationship with God and kind of checking my heart and seeing where I'm at.
0: Okay. And so... You've employed a lot of spiritual disciplines in that story. Solitude, I noted, prayer. and You use scripture, so you're meditating on scripture, reading scripture. You're resting, which is Sabbath that Lee talked about last week. And you're fasting from technology and from food for a portion of one day a month. And you're doing it on some other Wednesdays, too, throughout the month. So several days a month you're doing that. How has all of those spiritual disciplines impacted your relationship with God?
1: So I would say, going back to that verse, it says, return to me with all your heart. And the Lord convicted me of that, of not um, returning to him with the pieces of me that are easy to give, um, but with all of it. And so um, I took one tiny step of obedience, and the Lord just, like, showed up. Um, And that's what he does when we trust him. Um, I expected my fast to be... I expected myself to be hangry and grumpy and irritable and I just saw the Lord show up and give me joy and more freedom than I've ever known um, and I thought my walk with him was good um, I felt comfortable with where I was at um, and he's like just showed me that there's just so much more um, when you take that tiny step of obedience and I saw him go from being a friend to being my best friend and just somebody that I get to walk with daily
0: all right let's give her a hand thank you man Here's how we're going to close. I just want to draw attention to the bulletin insert. Give you some practical tips how you can engage God and yourself in this practice of fasting this week, if you'd like to do that. So you can take a look at that insert when you have time. Uh, A reminder again. I'll say what I've said once. I want to close with this thought. There is still a war going on. Every day of your life, as long as you're in this mortal body, there's a war going on. There are three enemies, according to the Word of God, that oppose us. That opposes the Holy Spirit and the desires of the Spirit living inside of you as Christ followers. First of all, there's those organized forces of evil mentioned in Ephesians 6. And then there's a world system that is trying to squeeze you into its mold, into a futile way of life, the Bible describes. And then there's your sin nature that you were born with that the world, the flesh, and the devil those are our enemies in this war, in the midst of this daily battle, and it is a daily battle, the giver of life, (laughs) the author of life, your lover is calling you to be with him relationally, like Charity pointed out in that opening testimony, in every moment of your life, and one of the disciplines that helps us overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, can be fasting, accompanied by prayer, scripture, meditation, and worship. The Holy Spirit can show you Maybe your season of life is not a grad student. Maybe you don't have Wednesdays off. There's all kinds of ways, though, he can show you to employ this discipline in your spiritual life. It is a tried and tested tool throughout church history for the past 2,000 years for going deeper in your relationship with Jesus. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to engage God in worship in just a minute. If you're on the prayer team or you'd like to be on the prayer team, just scatter out around the room. This is our ministry of time. If you feel led by the Holy Spirit to go minister to someone, to pray for them, even a total stranger, or to give them the words, feel free to do that. Communion is available around the room. We take it as the early church did each week. At least we offer it. I invite you to take it and confess your sins before you do as the New Testament writers tell us to. Also, we have a couple of baptisms coming up in just a minute. If you'd like to be baptized, come tell someone and we can take care of that too. Find me, I'll be right down here. So baptism, communion, prayer, all the things that happen in the first century church, worship, it's all happening in this little gym in Fayetteville, Arkansas this morning. Thank you for coming, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the privilege of speaking about one of the spiritual disciplines that you want us to consider at least employing in our lives at some time in some way. Speak to each person in this room. Impress us what we should do to draw closer to you. We love you. Thank you for the opportunity now to stand and engage you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.